Park Hopping Podcast, number 96, insert, change, delete. Lots of important things to say. This is not Coming up next in our show. This is not media. First, the news. This is not news. Now, welcome back to the show. This is another crappy podcast production. Celebrating over 12 years of posting Disney stuff on the internet. This is another crappy podcast production. Hi there, this is Alan from DisneyFans.com, and this is the Park Hopping Podcast, show number 96, the podcast that proves anyone can have their own podcast. Welcome back to the Park Hopping Podcast. I'm getting ready to head to Chicago for the weekend for the 18th annual last Chicago Color Computer Festival. It's an event that I've attended almost every year since it started back in 1992. We get together once a year to basically just hang out and talk about how much fun we had almost 30 years ago playing with the old Radio Shack TRS-80 color computer, so good times. Previously on the Park Hopping Podcast, I revisited the rope drop from Disney's California Adventure, this time to experience the new version being done for 2009's What Will You Celebrate promotion. Today on the Park Hopping Podcast, we're going to park hop back to the East Coast to Walt Disney World. But first, is it just me, or does the font that was used in the original Knight Rider TV series look a lot like the Haunted Mansion font? I mean, check it out. I just watched an old Knight Rider episode online at Hulu.com and noticed the lettering was, was very much like the Haunted Mansion logo. I actually compared it to a few of the different fan-created mansion fonts, and most of the letters match up pretty well, so that's interesting. Now, come to think of it, the drive through sign at the old Taco Bell down the road is also very Haunted Mansion-looking. So, leading you on for a potential future episode, have you noticed any lettering or signage outside of Disney that really made you think Disney? Drop me a note and tell me what you've seen in the real world. Podcast at DisneyFans.com Up next, as of Sunday, March 22nd, 2009... If you go to the iTunes Music Store directory and search for the term Disneyland Podcast, you get a listing of 71 items. When you sort them by popularity, the Park Hopping Podcast shows up in position 21. This makes me wonder, just, just how does this work? I've always heard that the iTunes podcast rankings were based on new subscriptions only through iTunes. So a massively popular podcast with a million subscribers might appear way at the bottom of the list simply because other newer podcasts were getting more new subscribers, even if they were far less popular in reality. There have been some experiments done even where a, a podcast would ask all of its listeners to unsubscribe and then resubscribe again on a specific day, and they'd see their popularity jump to the top of the list, if only for a short time. But perhaps this isn't really the case, or at least it isn't any longer. I mean, how else can a podcast that no one can subscribe to still show up? Other podcasts that I have, which I haven't updated in ages, like the Kingdom Herald, Disgruntled Disney Dweeb, and the various park-hopping video feeds, they still show up above dozens and dozens of other podcasts. But at least those old podcasts of mine are still getting discovered and downloaded by new folks all the time, even if there hasn't been any new content in a while, so I mean, I guess I could explain that. So it's just something else to ponder. Okay, well, let's get on with today's episode. It begins like this. The Disney Theme Park Empire. 
Now we know it, it's an ever-changing place, though sometimes it changes much faster or slower than other times. Over the years, there have been many additions, changes, or deletions made to the theme park lineups, and I thought it might be fun to talk about some of them. Today we're going to be focusing on the Walt Disney World Resort, and this episode may be particularly interesting to those of you too young to have ever visited Disney World back when the only theme park there was the Magic Kingdom. So we're talking the period of time from 1971 to around 1982 when Epcot opened. So we're going to begin at Disneyland 2, the second theme park attempt by the Disney Company. In the 16 years between the 1955 opening of Disneyland in California and the 1971 opening of the Magic Kingdom in Florida, the Imagineers had plenty of time to learn what worked and what didn't when it came to theme parks. Certainly, none of the original Disneyland Tomorrowland attractions, which were completely removed, updated, or replaced within that park's first decade, would get replicated in Florida. Instead, the designers would focus primarily on what worked at Disneyland and figured out ways to improve these things. Now, some of the improvements were simple due to the availability of more space for the Florida project. At Disneyland, Fantasyland attractions like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride featured small ride vehicles that could seat two adults. In Florida, Mr. Toad would gain a back seat to double capacity and even a second track to expand capacity even further. The original Disneyland Castle, never designed to hold anything inside it other than a few small shops on the ground floor, would be re-envisioned as Cinderella Castle and it'd be enlarged to contain a restaurant, upstairs, and even space for a Disney family apartment. At Disneyland, Walt had his own small efficiency above the firehouse on Main Street, and he had planned to have a much larger place built for him to stay in in New Orleans Square, though he died before that project could become a reality. And allow me to digress for just a moment. In the years that followed, uh, Disneyland's New Orleans Square apartment location eventually became home of the Disney Gallery. It was a higher-end Disney art and collectible shop. Located just above the entrance to Pirates of the Caribbean, this facility was a very unique place to shop, as you could still see how the rooms were going to be set up for an apartment, not a store. Right where the cash registers were located was the original uh, kind of small kitchenette area, and the sink was still there below the counter. In the various rooms were wall outlets and closets, and if you got the right cast member, you could even get a tour where they'd tell you what was supposed to go where. Now, I remember being shown around one time, and they pointed out all the wall outlets in the room, where a typical room today might have, say, at most, you know, what, what do you have, like an outlet on each wall of a room? There were rooms in the Disney Gallery with several outlets along the walls. Now, this was incredibly rare back in the 60s, since there really weren't that many things to plug in. But Walt apparently had the idea that as time progressed, there would be more and more electrical gadgets needing a power outlet. So that's quite visionary, though I, I guess he didn't predict the coming of power strips. Anyway, this location was built at Disneyland, and a similar one was built at the Magic Kingdom, but neither ended up being living quarters for the Disney family. In Florida, part of the upper level was initially where the phone switchboards for the park were located in the early years, uh, but when the Year of a Million Dreams kicked off a few years ago, both of these locations were transformed into high-end hotel rooms to be awarded as prizes. So while the Disneys never got to use the rooms as intended, in the past few years some lucky guests and special VIPs have stayed overnight in the Magic Kingdoms. But I digress. Okay, that's out of the way. My point is, after creating a small living area at Disneyland, Walt wanted something larger, and those plans were carried forward with the expansion at Disneyland, then designed into the Magic Kingdom from the very beginning. Other expansion changes were more simple. 
Walkways at Disneyland can easily get crowded on busy days, so the walkways in Florida were made much wider. Facilities were expanded as well, such as building, you know, a much larger restaurant seating area or, you know, bigger restrooms. Basically, the stuff that worked at Disneyland was being built larger at the Magic Kingdom. So let's let's talk about some additions. Disneyland 2 would have some unique additions not found at the original Disneyland. Since Florida was already much closer to the real New Orleans, a recreation of New Orleans Square housing Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion, you know, was not built. Instead, Liberty Square was built, and it was placed between Fantasyland and Frontierland. For some reason, Frontierland was not given a connection to the hub like it had at Disneyland. With Westerns far less popular in the 70s than in the 50s, maybe that had something to do with it. So instead of having Adventureland and Frontierland off to the left of the hub like in California, the Florida park would have Adventureland and Liberty Square, and you'd have to go through one of those lands to get to Frontierland, much like how you have to pass through Adventureland or Frontierland in California to get to New Orleans Square. Now, this seems complicated. It seems that even with all this extra space, the park designers were already finding it a little impractical to try to link every land directly to the hub where the castle was. Liberty Square would be the East Coast home to the Haunted Mansion, with a rethemed building more fitting to a, the New England fill of the land, but Pirates of the Caribbean was not planned to be part of the Florida project. The area was already too close to the history of real pirates, and it was thought visitors wouldn't be as interested in fake pirates. Instead, an all-new attraction, the Hall of Presidents, was added. So instead of having a few great moments with Mr. Lincoln, like in California, now you could share some quality time with every U.S. president to date, and even hear some words from George Washington before Abraham Lincoln took over. So an entirely new land and new animatronic attraction was created for Florida, only this, this really isn't the case. A Hall of Presidents attraction had been envisioned and planned for Disneyland as one of the many potential expansion ideas. In fact, the entire Liberty Square concept was proposed as an expansion for Disneyland, with an entrance off of Main Street just past the Opera House on the right, right past where the hat shop is today. There's actually concept artwork which was on display at the Opera House, that showed a small section called Liberty Street. Now, over the years, I've seen a number of different concept drawings, including some even labeled as Liberty Square for Disneyland, and references to a Hall of Presidents display. Other ideas considered included an International Street and Edison Square. So, so in Florida, this new idea was really an old idea that had originated as a potential expansion for Disneyland. They just didn't have the space, time, or money, or whatever to build it there. Now, the omission of Pirates of the Caribbean turned out to be a mistake, uh, as the Disney folks underestimated just how much people expected to ride with pirates at a Magic Kingdom. So a few years after opening, a section between Adventureland and Frontierland, uh, Caribbean Plaza, uh, gained a scaled-down version of Pirates. Now, today, 40 years after the original version opened in 1967, Pirates of the Caribbean remains one of the most popular attractions in each park. Yet, Hong Kong Disneyland opened without a Pirates of the Caribbean. It's also had some rough years hitting attendance goals since it opened. You'd, you'd think by now they'd figured out that, that you really have to open with Pirates, especially after how trendy Pirates became thanks to the spin-off Pirates of the Caribbean movies. That's almost a digression. Still, in, in a way, it's a shame that Disney listened to customer demand back then. Instead of building Pirates, there were plans to use the same type of ride system, the same type of boat ride, and create the next generation of floating adventures, this time situated in Frontierland. 
The Western River Expedition was going to use everything the company had learned on pirates. It was going to be located in a huge show building near where Big Thunder Mountain Railroad was eventually built. And this ride was announced, and for years, models of the attraction were even on display on Main Street. But with pirates taking priority, we never got to float through Wild West shootouts and sing along with singing cowboys. And every now and then, rumors of a modern version of the Western River Expedition pop up. I've heard talk of bringing it to Disney's California Adventure, as well as for a potential addition to some of the overseas parks. Of course, as a Disney fan, we hear a lot of unsubstantiated rumors. I mean, so who knows? Ideas never die, right? Other new attractions included Tomorrowland's If You Had Wings, considered by many to be one of the great Lost Magic Kingdom rides. For those who never got to experience it, the closest thing I could compare it to is the Mexico boat ride at Epcot. You're going past travelogue-type displays made of projection screens, but on an, on an Omnimover track like the Haunted Mansion instead of a boat. In fact, the Buzz Lightyear attraction still uses altered versions of the original vehicles traveling along the original track. Uh, the animatronic Country Bear Jamboree was another new-for-Florida addition. This idea originally surfaced while Walt Disney was still alive, and it was being proposed for a Disney ski resort called Mineral Springs that was never built. The Country Bear Show in Florida proved to be very popular, and I believe this became the first example of an attraction that opened in Florida first and then at Disneyland. The Disneyland version opened about five months later as part of a new expansion to Disneyland called Bear Country. The Disneyland version was built double-sized with two separate theaters. I've always heard this was done because the original in Florida was just so popular they decided to scale it up for Disneyland. The problem with this now that I go to look at the dates is seeing that they open just five months apart makes me think this is just another random bit of incorrect information floating around. Unless, of course, Disney was just that good back then and they could double a project like this and get it open within five months. I mean, does anybody actually know... Maybe we should ask Paul Barry of DoneInTheDark.com. He, he seems to be the biggest Country Bear fan I know. Now, I'm sure there were many other additions for Florida, from small things like new stores on Main Street, like the barber shop. So let me know what you can think of, and we'll revisit this topic again in a future episode. Now, moving on to changes. As I mentioned earlier, some things were recreated at the Magic Kingdom, but not as exact duplicates. I've, I've already mentioned how Mr. Toad's Wild Ride was expanded to have two tracks, and the show for each track was actually slightly different. Other Fantasyland attractions received similar changes. While each Magic Kingdom may have a Peter Pan's flight, the rides are quite different. Today, we can argue about which version has better special effects, but overall, it seems most of the Florida Park dark rides were more complete and contain maybe an extra scene or two or a different order than the California originals. The Carousel of Progress started out at the World's Fair then came to Disneyland. When uh, Walt Disney World was opening, the carousel left Disneyland and it got an updated version of the show with a new theme song for Florida. Many other areas of the park received similar altered copies of attractions. There was a larger Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse grown in Adventureland, the Haunted Mansion gained a few extra show scenes and a different loading and unloading area. The Tomorrowland People Mover went high-tech and was powered by electromagnets. In California, the chain of cars was propelled by spinning tires in the track, while Florida's version was moved by linear induction. That's a term many amusement park fans wouldn't learn for decades later when such systems became common as high-speed launch systems for those high-tech roller coasters. 
Instead of recreating the 1959 submarine voyage, Florida visitors would get to board Captain Nemo's Nautilus and take a voyage 20,000 leagues under the sea. It's a Small World would get an enhanced show building where the boats would float through an entirely filled area of water similar to Pirates of the Caribbean instead of through a flume of water that went through dry sets. The monorail would change from a small sit-down attraction inside a theme park, a ride, to an actual real-world transportation system used to get guests from the parking lot into the theme park. Heck, even the original e-ticket, the Jungle Cruise, would get an entirely new cavern sequence to go through though the jokes remained unchanged. But to this day, bi-coastal Disney fans will still debate which version of a cloned ride is the best. So, so let's just move on to some of the significant deletions. The surprising thing to me to this day is how many fewer attractions there are at the Florida Magic Kingdom when compared to Disneyland. In 1971, the Magic Kingdom opened without a Pirates of the Caribbean. We understand this one. We know what happened. But there was also no Storybook Land Canal Boats, no Casey Jr. Circus Train, no Grand Canyon Diorama and Primeval World, no Matterhorn, no Mine Train Through Nature's Wonderland, or any of the other classic Frontierland attractions that were still operating in California at the time. We can speculate that some attractions were not built because they just weren't expected to be as popular with a 1970s audience as they might have been to a 50s audience. We're talking about, you know, a few years short of 20 years of some of these attractions being around. But it's probably more likely that the Disney company just did not want to spend all that money, hoping instead to open the park with a lighter selection of attractions and expand in new directions in the future. We certainly know there was a phase two planned for Walt Disney World. Things like the Western River Expedition Ride, as well as a number of new resorts, were announced to the public. Though few of these Phase 2 items seem to have ever been built. Instead, the resort evolved in new directions that today make the experience quite a bit different from visiting the original Mac in 1971. So this brings us to your homework assignment. Over the years, many new items have been added to both parks. Splash Mountain, Space Mountain, Big Thunder Mountain... Variations of things have been built, such as Mickey's Toontown, and eventually Mickey's Toontown Fair, or Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin versus Buzz Lightyear Astro Blasters. We've seen attractions change to different things at both parks. Mission to Mars became Alien Encounter, then later Stitch's Great Escape in Florida, while in California it just closed down for many years before finally becoming the Pizza Port Restaurant. Circle Vision in California became a queue for rocket rides, which then closed to become Buzz Lightyear. While in Florida, their Circle Vision became Timekeeper, and then the Munsters Incorporated Laugh Floor. So, what I would like to hear from you is the following. For those of you that have visited both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom, what is your favorite attraction, your favorite overall attraction, that's at both parks? And which version do you prefer, and why? And then what is your favorite unique attraction, such as Indiana Jones or the Hall of the Presidents, that you wish the other park would add? And if they added it, what changes would you make? And yes, we'll allow you to consider non-Magic Kingdom attractions such as Star Tours being built at the former Disney MGM Studios, but let's limit it only to attractions that exist in one Magic Kingdom or the other. We'll save comparing Soarin' over California at Disney's California Adventure to the Epcot Land Pavilion version for another podcast. So, any takers? You can email me at podcast at DisneyFans.com. So, the next time you're at either Disneyland 
or the Magic Kingdom. Be sure to take an extra picture, shoot some extra video, because you really never know when something you like, love, or hate is going to go away and never be around again. And on that note, I think that'll do it for me this time, so be sure to visit DisneyFans.com, where you can browse around 76,000 digital pictures I've taken at Disneyland, Disney World, and other theme parks across the country, as well as dozens of downloadable video files from the Disney parks. If you want to drop me a note, again, my email address is podcast at DisneyFans.com. This has been the Park Hopping Podcast, show number 96. Insert, change, delete. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit anothercrappypodcast.com to learn more about this and other equally exciting podcasts. Hey, if you're planning a trip to Walt Disney World and plan to stay off-site and you've ever wondered what the deal is with all those cheap ticket timeshare promotions, visit DisneyFans.com secret. You can get a special deal at a luxury resort all by enjoying a great breakfast while taking a tour and listening to a self-pitch. That's DisneyFans.com secret.